Hi, my name is Mary, and the Old Testament reading is found in Isaiah chapter 56, verses 4 through 7. The Lord says, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, choose what I desire, and remain loyal to my covenant. In my temple and courts, I will give them a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an enduring name that won't be removed. The immigrants who have joined me, serving me and loving my name, becoming my servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath without making it impure, and those who hold fast to my covenant, I will bring them to my holy mountain and bring them joy in my house of prayer. I will accept their entirely burnt offerings and sacrifices on my altar. My house will be known as a house of prayer for all peoples. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Abby. The New Testament reading is found in 2 Corinthians 1, 18-22. But as God is faithful, our message to you isn't both yes and no. God's Son, Jesus Christ, is the one who is preached among us among you by us, through me, Sylvanus, and Timothy. He wasn't yes and no. In him, it is always yes. All of God's promises have their yes in him. That is why we say amen through him to the glory of God. God is the one who establishes us with you in Christ and who anointed us. God also sealed us and gave us the spirit as a down payment in our hearts. The word of the Lord. Good morning, my name is Katie. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading found in Luke 11, 1 through 4. Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. Jesus told them, when you pray, say, Father, uphold the holiness of your name. Bring in your kingdom. Give us the bread we need for today. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who has wronged us, and don't lead us into temptation. The Gospel of the Lord. Here, let's remain standing as we pray. Father, we ask that by your Spirit you would speak to our hearts today, that you would open up our eyes to see you and our ears to hear you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I know Jason's already introduced Pete, but I couldn't resist the chance to just say a couple things about it. Uh, first of all, good morning, New Life Downtown. Good to see you again. Um, Pete, Greg, this is such a privilege for us. This is our third summer having Pete here sp speaking to us at New Life Downtown. And without fail, he always brings a word that challenges us and is always a word in season. Pete is uh, a dear friend who has inspired uh, my life personally. In fact, in more ways than he probably realizes, the Lord has used him to uh, stoke the fires of my own um, devotional life with the Lord. Pete is an amazing pastor of a church in Guilford, England. I've been there. I've had the privilege of speaking there. Um, many of you might know Pete through the 24-7 prayer movement, which began in 1999 and has uh, taken the world by storm. Uh, he's written several books about it. The newest one is called Dirty Glory. Um, if you are interested in reading stories that will just ignite your uh, thirst and hunger for the Lord and to see the Lord working in the world today, this is a, a beautiful, beautiful a book about that that will do that. So it's called Dirty Glory. It's all the ways the glory of God shows up in the gritty and unexpected places and moments of our lives. Um, recently, 
Pete has been involved in a movement just in the last couple of weeks called Thy Kingdom Come that happened over 85 countries, prayer meetings that happened in cathedrals and churches all around Europe during the season of Pentecost with thousands and thousands and thousands of people crying out to God. We sometimes only hear the bad news that comes from across the Atlantic, but I want you to know that there is a move of God that is taking that part of the world by storm. And so, it is our privilege to welcome Pete Gregg. Come on, New Life Downtown. Wow, thank you, Glenn. It is so nice to be back with you and uh, to see all that God's doing amongst you. I, I love this part of the world, obviously. You guys kind of got lucky. And I love um, this church. I love what God's doing in you and, and through you in this city. 850 kids at your kids' camps. Wow, I'm glad I'm leaving town. <laughs> I hear there was 4,000 at the Devo uh, conference last week. It's amazing all that the Lord is doing through you. And I love, uh, you know, Glenn Packham is one of the most uh, outstanding world-class leaders and most brilliant thinkers in the church uh, today. And so um, I'm honored to also have him as my friend. And uh, I don't know, you probably don't kind of come to church on Sunday morning and go, wow, Glenn is world class. You're like, oh, what's he on about now? But I'm coming in from outside saying this, this guy is honored and, and received uh, around the world as a, an exceptional leader. And so anyway, it's great to be back with you uh, today. Thank you for having me. And this is the third in your uh, Grow uh, series, looking at the explosive growth of the early church in the wake of Pentecost and uh, how we can grow as individuals, grow uh, as church and even become church, not just in name, but in the real uh, sense of uh, the way that the New Testament understands uh, church. And so the Apostle Luke, uh, he m maps the genome of the growing early church in Acts chapter 2, which is kind of the anchor uh, passage for this series. And uh, he, he, he lists four particular devotions that marked out the people of God back at, at the start there. And uh, so Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to one, the apostles' teaching, and that is uh, what Glenn spoke about two weeks ago, to fellowship, and that is what Pastor Evans spoke about last week, to the breaking of bread, we're about to do that at the end of my talk, and to prayer, which is what I'm going to speak to you about uh, today. The word uh, for devoted here is proskartereo in the Greek, and it, it's a strong word. It has a sense of continual pursuit, of, of single-minded devotion and desire. So th this is not just religious duty for them. Oh, we go to a lot of prayer meetings because we're in the Bible and, you know, we're starting the church. You know, we ought to do this. Uh, it's not just some spiritual technique. We've got a lot of problems and we ought to pray. There is this devotion, this desire, this single-mindedness to push into the presence of God that is not an optional extra for the body of Christ, but is one of the key, arguably the single greatest key at the heart of the church. So if we're going to be the church, not just the church, but the church church, we are going to be people who don't just pray a bit, but are devoted 
to prayer, corporately and personally. That is biblically undeniable. And uh, this is my own story, many of you will know, uh, that after planting two churches uh, that were going quite well, and I was getting a lot of invitations to, you know, travel and speak, and there was some media stuff, and lots of people were getting saved, some, uh, like a cavern opened up in my chest, this emptiness. I realized I was on the Christian conveyor belt doing the pastoral thing, but that my own personal relationship with Jesus was shallow. And this desire was birthed in me, that is this devotion to prayer, this longing for the presence of God. It opened up unexpectedly in my heart and my soul. And I realized I could do all that stuff and somehow miss out. That we were high on public activity, but weak on personal spirituality. We were driven by programs and products and personalities, but not by the power of God that we saw in the Bible, and not by the presence of God in a way that people's lives get derailed by encountering fellowship with us. And so when you start to have those conversations, you are pushed into the place of prayer. There's nowhere else to go, right? And so we began to pray. I persuaded all my friends that my prayer problem was their prayer problem too, you know. It's what leaders do, you know. Oh yeah, you've got this terrible problem. Really, it's just their problem. Watch watch that trick. And and so we began to pray uh, night and day. And the Spirit of God just came to our prayer room in the most extraordinary ways with angelic visitations, uh, miraculous healings atheists encountering God. And then, as they say, the thing went viral. We've been praying nonstop for 17 years. We're in over 100 nations, and it's growing faster right now than it has done at any point. And uh, I kind of got hijacked into this. And at the time, I thought it was weird. If you had said to me, you're a prayer leader, I'd have said, don't be ridiculous. Prayer is the thing I'm worst at. That's why we're trying to get it right. I'm just terrible at prayer. The thing I do is plant churches, But gradually, as I've understood the DNA, the genome of the church, I realized devotion to prayer is essential and not peripheral, okay? And so we read this in this passage. And uh, it's not easy. You know, just uh, before 24-7 started, uh, Sammy, my wife, and I led a, a guy to Jesus called Paul, who was uh, dealing a lot of drugs and uh, taking a lot of drugs. And he encountered Christ, and I began to try and disciple him. And in fact, uh, I would meet with him twice a week, study the Bible, pray with him. And it very quickly became clear that this wasn't good enough. Uh, many of you will know that you know, when you're struggling with cycles of addiction, some people just get miraculously set free like that, but most people it's a long and arduous process. I'm sure there are people here struggling with areas of addiction. It's just human. It's fairly uh, normal. And uh, one of the things that Christ brings is freedom. And uh, so we began to journey with Paul towards freedom. And it was a complicated and a slow and a frustrating process. And we realized that the key wasn't going to be just to, you know, teach him some good theology, but he was going to have to come and live with us. And uh, so he moved into our house, and um, we, 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 we journeyed with him. And then somewhere into the process, we got the terrible news that his dad had just died. And Paul went back to visit his, uh, his stepmom, and um, she said to him, Paul, would you like something to remember your father by? 
His dad was not a wealthy man. He was a car mechanic. Uh, But he said, yeah, I'd love that. She said, why don't you just go upstairs? You can choose anything you want. And he went upstairs, and he chose a sweater. You know, and he, every time he wore this sweater, he, he just felt really close to his dad. Okay, so whenever we saw him wearing the sweater, we'd be like, oh, Paul, you're wearing the sweater. That's lovely. You know, give him a little hug. And, and because it, it, it was such a deep and emotional thing for him, I never liked to tell him it really did not suit him at all. You know, <laughs> it was too small for him, for starters. And um, then his mum, his stepmom came to visit us and Paul had said to me, I think she'd like it if I wore the sweater. So we said, that's a really nice idea. So he went upstairs to put on the sweater. And she's downstairs drinking tea, which is literally all we do in England. And, um, <laughs> and watch Downton Abbey. And uh, eventually Paul comes down and he comes into the room wearing the sweater. She takes one look at him. She goes, Paul. What are you doing wearing my sweater? I've been looking for that for weeks. The idiot had gone to the wrong closet. All this time he's been feeling close to his dad. And it's been his mother's sweater. Here's the deal. So often we can find all kinds of stuff that gives us a false sense of proximity to the Father. We can, if we're not careful, live vicarious faiths, trusting in the stories and the sacrifices, the experiences, and yes, even the prayers of others to give us a sense of being close to the Father. And he watches us getting consumed with all the latest programs and the, the, the latest album from Bethel and the latest t-shirt that we've got to wear and the latest conference we've got to attend and the father says to the son what are they doing and the son says I don't know they're just caught up in some religious swirl and the father says do you mind if I have a word with them and the spirit says be my guest and the father steps in he looks you in the eyes and says nice sweater doesn't suit you when do we cut out the middleman and have a conversation like, like uh, you can do all that stuff if you're into it, but, but when do we just go one-to-one, you and me, and walk and talk together the way that Adam and Eve did in the cool of the evening, right? Are you sick and tired of how complicated and religious Christianity gets? Just raise your hand. If you're just done with that, a few of you are like, no, I love it. Mm. Oh, yeah. He just says, let's do this thing together. That is the heart of prayer. They were not devoted to prayer because they're like, we have really got to be into prayer because it's what Christians do. It is the genome of the church. They are praying because they miss Jesus and they want to talk to him. And they don't have a clue what to do. They've planted a mega church in a week and they don't have email. They need help. So they pray a lot. This is the heart of prayer. And as we move into this summer season, it is an exquisite opportunity for each one of us to declutter a little, to simplify, to come back into the, strips, the slipstream of God and to prioritize his presence, to put first things first again. Maybe as you come to the Lord's table in a, a few minutes, one of your prayers might be, would you renew in me that devotion 
to you. And that desire for your presence. Would you, would you, as I eat the bread, would you make me hungry for more of you? Now, I want us to look at one particular example of the corporate prayer life of the church uh, in these early days. And this one is from Acts chapter 4. And what is amazing about this is we're about to see and hear the actual prayer meeting of the early church. It is stunning. We are literally about to hear what they prayed. And it's kind of interesting. And there's a lot we can learn. So this is Acts chapter 4. We're going to read verses 23 to 31. And uh, so here we go. On their release. So Peter and John have been at the temple at 3 p.m. for the prayer meeting. Please notice, they're still attending corporate prayer. In fact, they probably went twice a day. And on the way to the prayer meeting, they've healed a guy. It's created a mess. The Sanhedrin and the religious leaders have got very upset and have rebuked Peter and John and said, you've got to stop preaching about Jesus and doing miracles. And, and, and we kind of go, duh, no-brainer. Don't listen to them. You're the goodies, they're the baddies, right? But they don't really know they're in the Bible yet, okay? They're just... They're ordinary dudes, fishermen. They know something pretty amazing has happened to them. But they have been brought up to respect the religious leaders who know way more about theology than them. And these dudes who really know the stuff have said, you're heretics. That's, that's scary. In addition to that, this is not idle threat because their friend Jesus has just been crucified for saying the wrong stuff. Okay? So I want you to feel the fear of the moment. And what they do is they instinctively go back to find the people of God. Listen, when you're struggling, when you're scared, when life feels chaotic and out of control, one of the primary temptations that will come upon you is to isolate yourself. But that is the time you have to push into community. Because often you won't be able to find God up there somewhere. You will find the love of Christ in other human beings. And so they go immediately from these threats back to the church. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Notice, immediate and instinctive. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea, everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father, David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up. The rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God boldly. This is an explosive and critical moment. A moment of decision. It is a moment in which the church makes a decision and takes a great quantum leap forward and the gospel gets preached. They decide we're not backing off. The gloves are off and we're going to fight. And uh, the, the Spirit of God anoints this moment of prayer. 
The room shakes. The spirit is poured out. Courage is released. But notice how they prayed. They prayed when they hear this news of intimidation. They prayed immediately, instinctively, spontaneously, and all together. They didn't say, hey, we've got a real problem here. We should have a meeting. Uh, We should make a strategy. Or we should get out of town. Or we should have some prayer at some point. They just prayed. It was their first response, not their last resort. Maybe one of the invitations for some people today is for prayer to become your first port of call and not your last resort. um, Sammy and I have some dear friends uh, who, the guy is an incredibly successful businessman. He owns like 17 different companies, used to own Jimmy Choo's, those of you who know, like he's, he's super successful, uh, part of our uh, church community. And uh, th- th- their name's James and Julia. They, they said to Sammy and me a few years ago, do you want to come on a holiday with us? Now, when people like James and Julia say, do you want to come on holiday? <laughs> you just say yes. You don't check your calendar. <laughs> you just say yes. <laughs> and they rented out a catamaran, you know, a dual-hulled yacht, Uh, just off the Mediterranean Ocean. And um, they said, you have one hull and we'll have the other with our family and we can meet in the middle for like drinks and nibbles. And we just kind of sailed around these idyllic European islands and every night we'd drop anchor and, you know, the sun would set and um, it was was beautiful. And uh, one particular night we had dropped anchor in a particularly nice uh, bay uh, it was just beautiful, and our kids were out all tanned and happy, and we just put re- a really nice dinner out on the back of the, the yacht, uh, and the sun was setting. Uh, it was perfect. And just at this precise moment, this great cloud of mosquitoes rose up, right? And some of you right now are so exhausted, you're thinking, good, I'm glad that happened to them. I'm glad that, yeah, thanks for that. Thank you. So... So our moment of perfection is about to be spoilt. My friend James, who became a Christian through Alpha in his 20s, uh, he instinctively started to pray. And he just goes, oh, dear Lord, uh, we, just, we just rebuke these mosquitoes. We just pray you'd send them away. Now, as he's praying, I'm thinking this is a stupid prayer. Okay, that's what I'm thinking. Everyone else has got their eyes shut. Mm, yeah, we just rebuke the spirit of mosquitoness. You know, it's all that. I'm thinking, this is a stupid and a dangerous prayer. This is what, it's stupid because God is big and clever and he has a lot of pressure in the Middle East right now. And, you know, honestly, he's probably a little too busy to worry about the alfresco dining arrangements of spoiled rich people on the Adriatic, you know? You just get, get with the program here. I've written books on why God doesn't answer these kinds of prayers. Like, I'm an expert on this. You know, this is what I'm thinking. This is a bad prayer. Bad prayer. And also it's a dangerous prayer because my kids are listening. And when, not if, God, who's busy in Syria, does not answer this prayer, my kids are going to conclude God doesn't answer prayer and grow up and become Satanists. Okay? So, so I, I, I'm just... Like, this is what's going on in my head. And then the most annoying thing happened. I'm still angry about this. This light little breeze just rose up 
and blew away the mosquitoes, whereupon a worship session broke out on our boat. They're all going, oh, thank you, Jesus. Papa, Daddy, we thank you for your love and, you know, and all this. I'm going, God, are you serious? I have friends who've died of cancer and you do this? But seriously, isn't that the problem? The miracles are so arbitrary sometimes. Why do you do that one and not that one? Sometimes I think it'd be easier if you didn't ever do any miracles. I can just get my head around that. But why do you do some and not others? Help me get my head around that. You're the God of miracles, but don't tell me you weren't thinking that as you sang that lyric earlier. Now, I don't know if that was a miracle or just a meteorological fluke masquerading as one. But here's what I do know. When you pray about the small stuff, you live with greater gratitude. You give thanks to God for a little breeze or a parking spot outside Walmart on a wet Thursday in November. You know, you live with greater gratitude. If you only ever pray about the big stuff, you'll only be occasionally grateful. If you learn to walk and talk with God, to devote yourself to God, to pursue God in prayer, to make all of your day a living conversation with a living God, what you're going to find is that you live with greater intimacy and greater celebration. Right? Does this make sense? Okay. So they prayed instinctively. They didn't say, we ought to pray about this. It's just their gut reaction. Whoa, problem. Let's pray. You go straight to God in prayer. Mark Baddison in his brilliant uh, book, The Circle Maker, says, prayers are prophecies. They are the best predictors of our spiritual future. Who you become is determined by how you pray. Ultimately, the transcript of your prayers becomes the script of your life. Wow. Now, also, notice not just how the church prayed, but what they prayed. Because this this prayer we just read together that has been written down for us is 138 words long. And the really weird thing about it is that the first 103 words are just telling God stuff he already knows about himself. You did this and you are that. And then it's only in the last 25%, the last 35 words, they actually get around to asking for any kind of help at all. What's that about? They're on a lot of pressure. Why are they doing this? And I think the answer is that they are contextualizing their crisis in the story of God. They are rooting their prayers in the apostolic teaching. They are saying our little story is part of your big story. They do it actually quite outrageously. They tell God some current affairs. Herod's just done this thing. Pontius Pilate's just done this thing. And then they say, but it was only what your power said in advance would happen. So they are contextualizing their story in the story of God. They're reminding themselves how great God is. Sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In effect, the people of God are, by, by, by rooting their intercession, their petition in worship, what they are doing is they are saying to themselves and to God himself and to the world out there, God, you are in charge. You are in, in control. You are bigger than our enemies, big as they are. You are greater than our troubles, great as our troubles are. Listen, you will not find hope 
for healing in the cancer, you find hope for healing in the healer. You will not find peace in the storm, you will find peace in the Prince of Peace. Take your eyes off your problems, great as they are, and focus on the greatness of God, and from his faithfulness you will derive faith. From his consistency you will find hope. Do you understand? Our prayer lives are not therapy. They are meant to be theophany. In your prayer time, you're not just there to emote in the presence of God. Oh, I'm feeling really sad about this. Remember, you are talking to the King of Kings. That's good news. There's an old Hebrew saying, God is not a kindly old uncle. He is an earthquake. That is good news because you all have things in your life right now that a kindly old uncle can only smile at, but an earthquake can shift. We have to rediscover the sovereignty of God, the greatness of God, the power of God, the wonder of God, because otherwise we will be consumed with the greatness of our own problems and lose sight of the greatness of our God. Amen? That is what we see in these first 103 words of this 138-word prayer. Thank you so much, by the way, those of you who've been praying for the United Kingdom, for for my country. We've had a really tough few months. Uh, I know some of it, uh, not all of it, but some of it has come through on your news feeds on CNN and NBC and Fox News and whatever else. We've had multiple terror attacks in the last few months. Uh, We had a terrible um, situation 12 days ago with an apartment block. In, in West London called Grenfell Towers that burnt down. 79 people burnt to death in their own homes. The nation is angry. There's been marches on the streets, rage, days of prayer. It's a hard time. And yet the really amazing thing is that within all the bad news, as Glenn said in the introduction, there is phenomenal good news. I've thought a lot about Charles Dickens and A Tale of Two Cities. You know, it begins, it was the worst of times and it was the best of times. That is how your life works. That is how life works. It doesn't get divided up into everything's wonderful or everything's terrible. Even when it's terrible, there's wonder. And even when it's wonderful, there is terror. Uh, uh, this is how it works. So in the UK right now, we have just seen, literally, the, I'm not exaggerating, we've, we've worked this out, the greatest outpouring of prayer that we have ever seen in the British Isles in my lifetime has just happened. Millions, millions of people crying out to God. And so uh, with this Thy Kingdom Come initiative, uh, it's extraordinary. Uh, it, it, last year we were in six cathedrals. This year we were in 36 cathedrals, all packed out, hundreds outside, not able to get in for the prayer times. Famous buildings that you've seen on postcards and all, all the rest of it. It's spread into 85 different countries. Uh, uh, thousands of churches getting involved. And it's not just the big, you know, St. Paul's Cathedral packed out with people praying. What really moves me is small rural churches that have done 24-1. Or 24-2. My mom is in a little rural, tiny little Anglican church. And she said, I cannot believe it. We just prayed all night. Like two years ago, we couldn't get anyone to our prayer meeting. We just prayed all night. And I can go on about 36 cathedrals and millions praying. She said, I don't care about any of that. You don't understand. My church just prayed all night. This doesn't happen in our village. You understand? And what I've begun to realize, let me be absolutely clear with you, because some of you right now are saying, that's nice, but it's just prayer. Let me be absolutely clear. This is what the church of Jesus Christ waking up looks like. 
It doesn't look like anything else. It looks like this. You're worried about the lost. I tell you how they get saved when you pray. Billy Graham said, uh, to prepare for, as he used to call it, a crusade, unhelpful term. Prepare for a mission. There's three things you've got to do. Pray and pray and pray. You're worried about the lost. You're worried about a social injustice. You want to know how to fight injustice? Pray. Discover the justice of God and then you'll have something to say and to give and to do and it'll be sustainable and meaningful ultimately because as Dostoevsky said, without God there is no morality. With God there is morality. There's a reason for saying some things are right, some things are wrong, some things are good, some things are evil and we have the power to fight. Amen? So we're starting to see people pray. And, you know, in London, the, the church has been in decline for many years. It has now, for the last few years, been consistently growing against population year on year. Our capital city, the church, is growing again. They probably don't report this to you on CNN. But this is what's happening in my own church. We started off meeting in the back room of a pub. Uh, and, uh, you know, we, we're growing quite fast. We grew 25% last year. Do you know 12.5% of our church came to Christ in the last year? Do you hear that? They've all done Alpha. Because why, why, why would you just pray a prayer with people when you can actually do a 10-week course around food talking about the real issues with them? We just baptized a whole bunch of them this time last week. That's what I was doing. The Lord is on the move. It's the best of times and the worst of times. And here's the thing you've got to understand for your own life, for your city here. It is when the nights get darker that the lights shine brighter. Do you understand? Stop waiting for the daylight to shine. When the daylight comes, you won't be able to shine. But in the nighttime, when things are hard, when things are difficult, when great problems come into your life, it is your great opportunity to shine with the love and the hope and the truth of Jesus Christ. And that is what we see here with uh, the early church. They are under great persecution, great pressure, but they understand the greatness of God. Let me show you a a photo. This is a, actually a painting from the National Gallery in London. Uh, this is by the Renaissance master Filippino Lippi, painted in the 18th century. And it depicts Mary there with Jesus on her lap and Saints Dominic and Jerome kneeling at uh, his feet. And the thing with this painting is that the art critics have always been a little bit unhappy with it because it's not one of his best. I mean, it's a Renaissance masterpiece, so it's got a hang in the National Gallery, but when you see it in reality up front, it looks a little bit like the background is about to topple out of the frame over the head of Mary. And one day, a famous art critic in England called Robert Cumming was studying this slightly second-rate Renaissance masterpiece, and he had an epiphany. he suddenly realized this wasn't painted to be hung in the National Gallery by tall people standing upright and analyzing it. It was painted to sit on an altar. And so he very self-consciously on the marble floor with tourists all around knelt down before this second-rate masterpiece. And he said, as he did so, everything morphed and came into perfect perspective. See, sometimes as we seek God in prayer, as we devote ourselves to prayer, we gain a new perspective which says this, I am not the lead character 
in the world's narrative. Reality is not defined by what I had for breakfast, how I feel, what I see in the mirror, and what I find in my bank account. Reality is defined by the greatness and the sovereignty, the inevitability and the beauty of God. And as we kneel and humble ourselves and say, you are God and I am not, all of life comes into a healthy and a helpful perspective. This is not therapy. This is theophany. This is not the greatness of my needs, but the greatness of God. This stuff I'm talking about is agonizingly difficult. As we were singing earlier, you're a God of miracles. Can I tell you the little narrative that's going on in my head? I just told you that we did a bunch of baptisms this time last week. There was an entire family that's come to Christ that's been baptized. Really broken. Um, None of them have jobs. They've all encountered Christ. And within this family... most of them aren't married yet, you know, it's so-and-so with their latest partner and all that stuff. And there's a couple um, who, she, she's pregnant. And she had said to us, when I get baptized, I don't want to, you know, go over backwards into the water because, you know, she's 27 weeks pregnant. I want to just kneel in the water and pour a bucket of water over her head. We said, that's fine. That was last Sunday, okay. Now, the backstory to that moment is this that as she was doing Alpha about week three or week four, I think it was, she and her uh, partner got out a photograph and showed it to my wife. It was an ultrasound scan of a baby in her womb, and they began to weep. They said, we've not shown this to anyone outside our own family. But this is Oscar. And he died inside me, aged when he was 27 weeks old within me. And we've not dared really to start trying for children again. It's too painful. And so we've been talking about the Father heart of God and the God who loves you and wants the best for you and answers your prayers. And they come to Christ. And they, You imagine how I felt when they said she's pregnant again. Yes. You understand why when she said, now I'm 27 weeks pregnant again. Can you just be really gentle how you baptize me? Yeah, of course. The day after, last Monday, she lost that baby. It died inside her. And I said to God, give me a break. Do yourself a favor. You're the God of miracles? Prove it. And so my week especially my wife's week has been at the hospital bed weeping and whatever. The baby actually took three days to be born. We held, my wife yesterday held this dead little baby and wept over and prayed over her. And we don't understand why the sovereign God who made heaven and earth and does miracles and makes mosquitoes go away so we can eat nice meals doesn't do the miracles we most need in our lives. And it hurts like hell. 
But I do know we don't have any hope but him. And that the very conception and creation of a new life is in itself a miracle. So I don't have some atheistic alternative. And I'm reminded of the fact that Israel means the struggle. And I have been baptized into the struggle. And we are wrestling against uh, principalities and powers in high places. And that Jesus himself lives with unanswered prayer. And I may not understand because my brain is smaller than a soccer ball and the universe is big. I may not understand but he's all I've got. And so somewhere between being angry with God and saying, do yourself a favor, I end up weeping saying, but you're all I've got. Please intervene. Please may they not give up on you. And please may they understand that you love them, even though you're doing a lousy job of showing it right now. And as we have waited with them and prayed with them and loved them, they have seen the love of Christ. And my wife took in a little Bible, a little um, daily devotional thing called Daily Lights, really simple little verses each day. She said, you might find this helpful. They're not really the reading type, you know. And on the day the baby was born dead, he got in touch and said, I read that thing this morning and it was Psalm 23. And we're walking through the valley of the shadow of death. But God is with us, isn't he? And we said, yes, he is. Do you understand? This is faith. It is messy and difficult. The only thing that is harder is to live your life without the hope of Jesus Christ, without the love of God, without believing that there is purpose and meaning in life and life beyond death. That is the really difficult thing, but it is not easy being a follower of Jesus Christ and celebrating a God who does miracles when there are so many unmiracles in our world. Amen? We've just got to tell it like it is a bit more. Amen? And so that is the journey of faith. That is the challenge that we all have. We're going to, in just a moment, take communion. The bread and the wine are this story. Firstly, they tell us that our story is part of a bigger story. The story, the narrative of God. And so as you take the elements, the bread and the wine, try to kneel before that painting and say, I am not the center of reality, you are. And I may not understand, it may be hard to say, but you are sovereign and you're in control and you do miracles. And the second thing that the table tells us is this, that where the bread was a broken promise, It also is the most wonderful and beautifully answered promise of all time. Abby read that beautiful scripture to us from 2 Corinthians. All God's promises are yes in Christ Jesus. And it may be that as you come to take communion in just a moment, you feel that there are broken promises in your life, things you longed for God to do, and you've been disappointed, and it makes it hard for you to devote yourself to him in prayer. All I can tell you is this. The communion is a feast of consolation and new hope. It is a defiant declaration that though there is death and though there is pain, there is also hope and there is life and there is resurrection. I wonder if for some of us, as we devote ourselves to prayer in this season, we're going to have to deal with some disappointments and make a simple decision that I will not allow the hurts in my history to rob the hope from my destiny. I will not allow the hurts in my history to rob the hope from my destiny. 
I'm going to take the bread and take the wine and draw a line and say, I'm still going to believe. What was the phrase Glenn used earlier? He said, we are meant to ask. Dare to ask. Dare to believe again. Dare to push into the promise of God. I wonder if some of us have had great promises from God in the past, but they've been so long in coming that we've downgraded our faith. We've downgraded our prayers. We're no longer praying, stretch out your strong right arm and do miracles and rooms are not shaking. And we've just accommodated our own disappointment. Do not allow the hurt in your history to rob the hope from your destiny. So come take the bread and wine and draw a line and step out afresh in the hope of resurrection. Finally, maybe as we come to take communion, this is simply a moment of great humility, of saying to God, I've been devoting myself to all sorts of other things, my career, that's not wrong. My, 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 my sports my passions but Lord God as the summer comes I want to declutter and simplify and devote myself afresh to you in prayer I want to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness one thing is needed says Jesus sit at my feet so let's devote ourselves to the Lord Jesus in prayer with all the pain and all the beauty of that invitation let us be the people of God